in John chapter 4, Jesus makes it unequivocally clear that the Father is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, unlike our passage today, the place does not make a difference, right? It doesn't matter in, in times come, whether it's on that mountain or on this mountain over here. The place doesn't make a difference, but be sure God is seeking true worshipers. In an allusion to altar-centered worship, and that's what we've got in Joshua 22, altar-centered worship. In an allusion to that, Paul urges us, in the passage on the front of your bulletin, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, now think of that for just a moment, an altar, our bodies as a living sacrifice. It is a rather graphic, violent, it's a brutal image when you take time to think about it. The question then is what is the worth of worship? What is worship worth to God? What is worship worth to you? The term that I used as the uh, title for the sermon today, worship wars, it may have existed before this, but I think most of us probably think of it in association with this dispute that developed in churches and evangelical churches, but not only evangelical churches, say 50 years ago, when churches were fighting and there was tension and there were splits over what could be described as competing worship styles, competing worship preferences. Some of these things were purely stylistic. Others of them were more substantive, and these were called the worship wars. Now, many decry the worship wars and decry the terminology of worship wars because they say it was a trivial thing that divided the church. It was a bad witness to the world to see all of these churches splitting from one another. It was not glorifying to God. There was no flexibility that was shown. There was no love that was shown as these churches divided. And perhaps sometimes that was correct. On the other hand, some things are worth fighting for. And worship is one of them. From Genesis chapter 4, and the acceptance of Abel's offering and the rejection of Cain's offering, it has been clear, God has made it clear that worship matters. It makes a difference. And how you worship matters. Joshua 22, the passage before us today, of course, puts a whole new spin on the term worship wars. This isn't about a mere split, you know, go down the street and start another church. This is about actual warfare. What is the worth of worship? Today I want to walk through that question and this passage by looking at fighting 
for worship, fidelity in worship, and fellowship in worship. We begin then with the fight for worship. In our passage today, we are concerned with the Transjordan tribes. Now that's the phrase that I'm going to use. I, I trust that you heard it said enough in the reading. Uh, the, the tribes of Reuben, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and half the people of Manasseh. The reason, by the way, that that is repeated so often is that this isn't a casual document telling the story. This is serving as a legal framework. And so when you've got a contract or you've got a covenant, you're filling in your name in all sorts of places. So the writer is not trying to think that maybe you forgot the name of those people or of Eleazar or Phinehas between two verses. He's simply doing it legally and clearly so that it's repeated over and over again. Everybody knows what we're talking about in the story. In any case, in our passage, these Transjordan tribes have been dismissed by Joshua, and they are dismissed with appreciation. He expresses thankfulness. They have fulfilled the covenantal obligations that were upon them and the promises that they made. They said that when they went into the land, that their fighting men would come along with Israel, assist Israel in the taking of Canaan, and then at that point, they would return to this land on the east side of the Jordan. Joshua then dismisses them with appreciation and with a charge to fidelity. They cross over to the other side, but before they cross over to the other side, they build, is this gonna be a motorcycle Sunday? Does anybody know if this is a motorcycle Sunday, another one? I'm gonna give it just a second. All right, let's try this just for a moment. Can I get somebody to pull those windows in the back and just shut, shut those two doors and we'll give it a shot? I think two motorcycle Sundays in a summer is excessive. One is one thing, two is excessive. All right, so they cross over and they build an altar, which is this great description of it, an altar of imposing size is what we read in the text here. Now, the casual observer looking at this might say, well, great, what's the big deal? So you crossed over to the other side and you built an altar. You're still part of Israel. You're still Israelites and you're still worshiping the Lord God. You would just like to have a place to worship God and a way to worship God that is more convenient that's a little bit easier than going to wherever it is where God has chosen to put his name. So it's no big deal, it's no problem, except of course, when we look at this text, we see that it is in fact a big problem. So let me read for us again, verse 12, just to articulate what a problem this is. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. So it's a big deal that they have built this altar. This war to come is not a war against the Canaanites and against their detestable worship practices. Instead, this war that's about to be fought 
is a war against your brothers. It is a war against people who you've been with forever, for years. It's a war against the people who have fought with you and next to you for the last seven years. Now, there was, from the beginning, a suspicion about these tribes. When they first declared their intent to settle on the west side of the Jordan, when they came to Moses and said to Moses, we have a lot of livestock, this land over here is a nice land for grazing, we'd like to stay on this side of the Jordan and not cross over, Moses was skeptical. And the people were suspicious of the intentions of them, and it seems to them then that now that they've been dismissed, now that they've gone over there, now that they've left this altar of imposing size, that the worst fears, the worst suspicions are confirmed. See, we told you they were going to rebel. We told you they were going to turn against us. And now that looks like exactly what is happening. Israel sends a delegation to the Transjordan tribes led by Phinehas. Phinehas, just in case you missed it when I read it, is the son of Eleazar, who is the high priest. And this man, Phinehas, he has a history. You know it when Phinehas comes around. In the book of Numbers, we see that this Phinehas has served as the hand of God in executing God's vengeance against people. So there was a time when the Midianites had led the Israelites astray in worship, and the Israelites are in process of repenting for that sin of having turned to Baal and being worship, worshipers of Baal. And during the very time when Israel is weeping and in repentance for that, an Israelite man and a Midianite woman go together into a house. Phinehas sees that that takes place, leaves the congregation, gets his spear, goes out, goes to those two, and runs them through. One and then the other, Phinehas. He is also the one who would then lead a battle against these same Midianites, God's judgment against them for leading the people of Israel astray. That spearing, God says, that stayed the plague. There had been a plague against Israel, and that zeal demonstrated by this Phinehas stayed that plague. Verse 17 in our passage, he reminds them of this. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even, even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord? That's a little reminder of where this all took place and of who he is in the process. There are consequences for sin and there are consequences for false worship. And that's also what we see as he reminds them of what took place with Achan. In verse 20, he talks about Achan, the son of Zerah. Did he not break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And guilt fell not only upon him and his family, but it fell upon all of Israel. And Achan's sin, and this is just a reminder of what we talked about when we worked through that story, it was not just a sin of theft. It was that, but it was not only that. It was also a worship failure. Achan took things that had been devoted to the Lord or that should have been devoted to the Lord. They were designed to be offerings that were given to the Lord. 
So it's not just I stole something, it is a worship failure that took place there. Phinehas is not hot-headed. He's not just a thug, a mean guy, somebody you call when you want to scare somebody. Instead, he is a man to quote God from Numbers chapter 25. He is a man who is jealous with my jealousy. That's what God says about him. He is a man jealous with my jealousy, who like our Lord Jesus is full of zeal for his father's house. Full of zeal for right worship. Make no mistake, worship matters to God, and it is not anything goes in worship. God had forbidden sacrifice and offerings apart from the place where he chose to make his name known, where he chose to establish the tabernacle and worship. And if you violate that, war is coming. And Phinehas was there to remind him. This is what it means when you violate that. Now, there's a lot more that can be said. But let me just summarize this section by saying this. We should, as we think about this, we should certainly appreciate the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. One of them I've already mentioned. One is a difference of place. Place no longer matters. Another difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant worship would be the difference of the elements that are used. The sacrificial system has been fulfilled in Jesus. And so the physicality and the things that were used in Old Covenant worship are no longer things that we ought to do. Let me make this reminder as well, which in our day and age you have to keep saying over and over again. When we talk about worship wars in the Old Covenant, that meant war. In all of its ugliness, in all of its fullness. In the New Covenant, we're making no suggestions here about anybody taking up swords or spears or guns for the purity of worship. We should also appreciate that there are circumstances surrounding the worship of God wherein variation is possible. Okay, so, so keep those things in mind, and then we should draw the lesson, the clear lesson out of this, that worship is worth a fight. It is worth fighting for the worship of God. So let's move now from fighting for worship to fidelity in worship. God has called the Transjordan tribes to covenantal loyalty and fidelity. And I say it's covenantal loyalty and fidelity intentionally to make it clear to us that this is an oath-bound charge and pledge that Joshua is laying upon them. Joshua is not just saying, Godspeed as you go back across the Jordan and live over there. Be well. He's not just saying, y'all be good when you go over there. I hope things go well for you. Joshua is putting them in a covenantal relationship with the rest of Israel, and they are bound to faithfulness in that covenantal relationship. Verse 5, 
says it this way. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. What should be clear to us in this passage, with that verse that I just read for us and in the passage as a whole, is that there is an inseparable and essential connection between a faithful life and faithful worship, between orthopraxy and orthodoxy. We are uh, used to thinking of orthodoxy as being right teaching, and that's true. There's an element of truth to that. Orthodoxy, more properly understood, is right worship. Those two things are wedded together. The two can be distinguished from one another. Formal worship is one thing, and day-to-day -day life is something different. And there are things that we do in day-to-day -day life that ought not be part of our formal worship. And there are things that we do in our formal worship that would be weird if you did them in normal life. So you can separate the two activities for the sake of understanding that these are two different things, but you can never divide them from one another. They can be distinguished without being disconnected. So we might think that only the most heinous of sins would be worth warfare against your brother. The Israelites, though, look at this imposing altar as exactly that, as an abomination, as a detestable thing in their sight. It is a representation to them of displaced loyalty, of a breach of covenant fidelity, and it is subject to the harshest of discipline because it is a clear, parentheses, or at least it appeared to be, a clear violation of the express command of God. Now, we have to feel the weight of this for us. We live in a time that makes much, makes a big deal of a person's personal relationship to God. So we read verse 5 and we think, all right, that's good. Love the Lord, cling to the Lord, serve the Lord with all your heart and soul. That resonates with us. We like the way that that sounds. And one hears phrases like, well, church doesn't matter. Externals don't matter. Services don't matter. Pastors don't matter. What matters is what's in your heart, right? Now, I don't want to not deny the importance of that. In no way do I want to deny the importance of that. As, as credentials for not denying the importance of it, I'm the same pastor who preached the psalm series on the soul. And we talked about the soul and the heart for like nine months together. So I don't want to deny that in any way. But if, if we detach that, what's going on in our hearts, what's going on in our lives, from corporate worship in the church, regulated by the word of God, under the authority of officers that are called by God 
appointed by a local congregation. If we bifurcate the individual soul and the scripture-appointed corporate worship of God, if we take our American love of individualism and freedom and right to do what we want to do, we carry it here to this place and say, I'll do what I want to do. I'll come when I want to come. If we take a take it or leave it approach to the worship of God, to Sundays, if we make kind of a familial negotiated contract, well, we'll go twice a month. We'll go once a month. We'll hit this, we won't hit that. If you take an anything goes approach to church, if you take the approach of saying about a church, well, I don't really care how they worship because they're really nice people and they've really got a nice program for the kids and they're really serving the community and they're really working on social justice issues. If you take those approaches, we become like the Transjordan tribes or the appearance of the Transjordan tribes. And here's the reality. We are standing before Phinehas. And there is danger for the soul. And we don't feel it. Because as it turns out, Phinehas literally is not standing there with his spear saying, what are you guys doing? If he was, we'd feel differently about it. We might see that worship matters. That it makes a difference. But God is patient. Finally, we look at the fellowship of worship, fellowship in worship. When worship becomes corrupted beyond recognition of scriptural ordinances, there is indeed a time to separate. To say enough is enough. We're not worshiping that way anymore. That is not ordained by God. But this is not the desire of Phinehas or of the men that came with him from the tribes of Israel. They want united worship under the command of God. That's their desire. They recognize that they too are going to suffer. If the Transjordan tribes take this approach, they're going to suffer as well. Consequences from God. And therefore, they want them to repent. Stop doing what you are doing. Return to us. When we began this series, I made the statement that the book of Joshua is not some grandiose land acquisition or expansion program. The book of Joshua is about worship. It is about the false and wicked worship of the Canaanites on the one hand, and it is about the worship of God under the ordinances of God in the place where God has chosen to establish his name as he dwells with his people on the other side. It is a book about worship. 
that God will deal with his people according to their worship. And Phinehas wants them to come back. Verse 19, but now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Forget the land. It's not worth it. We will carve out more land from our side for you. Come back over. Worship is more important. It's more important than a land to live in. It's more important than grazing opportunities. Now listen, we have to put, we have to put this in language of our day because it's easy for us to think land grazing, that's of another time. Worship is more important than your home. Worship is more important than proximity to your job. It is more important than your job. And listen, I'm going to say it, worship is more important than sports. And it's more important than the activities you have to do, and I don't care what they are. It doesn't seem that way. It seems like they are more urgent. It seems like they are the thing that will improve you as a person and you'll get better and you have more opportunities because you do them. It's a lie. Worship is more important than those things. It's more important than sleep. It's more important than school. It's more important than whatever deadline you're trying to meet at work. It's more important than catching music and lights and having a casual atmosphere and a cup of coffee. It's more important than that. Now, if ever a chapter of Scripture had a happy ending, this one does. I mean, we go from the cusp of warfare to, wow, this was just a simple misunderstanding. Now, it was a doozy of a misunderstanding, but it was a wonderful misunderstanding that took place. The Transjordan tribes agree. They agree with Phinehas. They basically say, this is, this is not a, an act of rebellion. This is a question of, can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? We want a witness to the fact that we're with you. That's what we want. They say, listen, if we're guilty of what you are saying, we should be subject, verse 23, to the Lord's vengeance. You guys are right. If we are violating what God has commanded in worship, take us out. As it is, they reaffirm their fidelity. To the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, and his worship and their fellowship with the other tribes. To which Jesus says, those are the kind of worshipers I'm looking for. That's the kind of worshipers that I want. And so, my friends, we have all been to many churches. I've been to a lot. You've been to a lot. We don't live in a day and age where you go to one church and that's all you've ever seen. You've been to many churches. In an age where... Sunday services 
are characterized by comfort, by ease, by frivolity, by carelessness in organization and execution of the services, or, on the other hand, characterized by choreographed stage presentations, by pipe pop psychology sermonizing, vapid music cranked up loud and sung with eyes closed and hands raised because you're all feeling the spirit at the same time in the same way. In an age where worship is changed to entertainment for the sensitive Christian who is so used to entertainment that they can't change out of it for a Sunday morning and so we have to mimic it in the church. In an age where Sunday is just another day and worship can be quickly displaced by something more interesting that comes up in your schedule, a better opportunity than being here, a, a novel Sunday morning activity, or just your need to sleep in. In this age, we got to fight for worship. We've got to fight to worship the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the splendor of holiness with reverence and with awe. And when you do that, you find rest for your souls. So, worship is worth it. It's worth whatever you went through this morning. It's worth the battles that you fought, perhaps with your kids, to get here. It's worth the struggles. It's worth the sleep that you missed. It's worth missing whatever activity you're missing right now. It's worth the heat that you're enduring, that I'm enduring. Worship is worth it because our God is worthy. Gracious God, help us to understand these things. Help us to understand the priority that you have of establishing worship in this world. Help us to understand that you are trying to invite us into the most beautiful thing in this world, to show us yourself. We live in a world that competes for this time. And we pray that you would help us to consecrate ourselves unto you, to subject ourselves to you, to fight the good fight to wage a good warfare. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.